Well, if you have your Bible, please do open up again to Genesis 39. It'll be helpful for you to track along with that as we look at it together. As many of you know, our son Hudson has just entered his first year at Methodist College Belfast. On the first parents' evening we had a while uh, ago, um, I remember going in, and I'll be honest, I felt a bit nervous for Hudson entering this new big school. Uh, I felt nervous thinking of the new chapter we were entering into as a family, and uh, I think I probably wasn't anywhere near as nervous as my dear wife, uh, and yet I felt it big time. And so on the big screens at the front of the hall we were in, um, I sort of, it caught my attention, the school crest. Um, Dom, do we have that ready to put up on the screen? Yes, now it's hard for an Armagh man who went to Royal School Armagh to put up a Belfast school and speak of it positively, but we'll try our best this evening. What, what, I, was, what I was really uh, struck with was the words right on the top of the Methody crest. Uh, do you see it there? Deus Nobiscum. Now, I did one year of Latin at school a long time ago, so I had enough to know that Deus means God, but I didn't know what Nobiscum meant. Does anyone know what it means? Yes, with us. Very good. I looked it up on my phone, um, and I saw Deus Nobiscum, God is with us. Thanks, Dom. You can take that down. And I thought to myself, ah, of course, the Methodist movement that Methodist College Belfast flowed out of was founded by John Wesley. And John Wesley, on his deathbed, roused his strength, and in his final words, after a long life of service of the Lord, he grasped hold of those nursing him, and he said, the best of all is God is with us. Those were the last words on Wesley's lips before he went to be with the Lord. And then it dawned on me, yeah, of course, that's the motto, in a sense, of the Methodist Church, and it is carried over into Methodist College Belfast School Crest. And for me, this was a lovely reminder in that moment when I, Google Translate, said, God is with us. In my nervousness, it was just what I needed at that moment, a reminder as we enter this new chapter, the Lord is with us. Now, why do I start sharing that with you? Well, this message, God is with us, is the message of reassurance that is right at the heart of the chapter we're looking at this evening. The last time we left off Joseph at the end of chapter 37, he had been betrayed and sold by his brothers into the hands of some Ishmaelite traders. After uh, James led us through the story of Joseph's brother Judah's dubious exploits in chapter 38, chapter 39, verse 1, picks up the narrative again of what's going on with Joseph. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. But then look at what we read in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. And then verse 3. His master saw that the Lord was with him. Then jump down to the very end of the narrative, verse 21, 
Joseph ends up in prison, and we read, but the Lord was with Joseph. And in the very last verse, verse 23, the Lord was with him. Now, you see repetition like that in any Old Testament narrative, and you know the author of the narrative really wants us to get the point. The Lord was with Joseph. But of course, we know that this is not just written down to give us a nice, accurate historical account of the events of this man Joseph's life. God has seen to it that this is inscripturated. This is written down in his word for our instruction, for our encouragement. He wants to get something done through having this story in our Bible. And this story encourages us greatly by reminding us today that no matter what is happening to us now, and no matter what might happen to us in the future, God has made us a promise. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. God is with his people. This chapter is about God's providential care of his people in all the ups and downs of life. And what we're going to do is walk through the, ma- the three main scenes of the text, see how God was with Joseph, and then what we'll do is just draw out a few implications for us today so that we can understand what this life might look like, the life of having God with us. What should we expect? So first, We'll run through the text, make some observations, application along the way, but then really think through the implications right at the end. So first scene, verses 1 to 6, we see that God was with Joseph in his forsakenness. As we already acknowledged in verse 1, we're told Joseph had been brought down to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders who then sold him on to this Egyptian man of prominence who was named Potiphar. We read in verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Now, it's interesting, you read that he was in the house about five times in these verses, because, see, the lowest of the low went into the fields to work outside, but Joseph got to work in the house. Everything about Joseph's circumstances had changed, but God's relationship with him had not changed. Everyone and everything Joseph knew and loved was gone. But the Lord was with him, his ever-present help in a time of trouble. We read that God was with Joseph and blessed him in his new circumstances. In verse 3, we read, God caused all Joseph did to succeed in his hands. Potiphar, his master, could see that God's blessing was on Joseph's life. It must have been Joseph's character, his gifting, his fruitfulness in his work, his integrity, his trustworthiness. And so Potiphar, seeing all this in verse 4, we're told, made him overseer of the whole house. 
putting him in charge of all that he had. Now, that was no small responsibility. There's an Egyptian papyrus that is housed in the Brooklyn Museum that gives the names and occupations of nearly 80 slaves in an Egyptian household. So you're, you're talking potentially a lot of servants who were there under Joseph's charge. In verse 5, we read that Joseph became God's instrument of blessing so that the blessing of the Lord was on all that Potiphar had. It makes you think back to the promise that the Lord gave to Abraham. You'll be blessed and all nations will be blessed through you. Joseph was becoming an instrument of blessing for this Egyptian household. So Potiphar, in verse 6, we're told, totally entrusted himself and all that he had to Joseph's care and he was able to rest knowing that his household was in good hands. He didn't have to think about a thing, but just putting the food into his mouth, we're told. That's how trustworthy Joseph was. But I want us to reflect on this for a few moments. Because though Joseph found himself in circumstances that he would never have chosen for himself, the manner in which he conducted himself was still a real blessing to those around him. There's a principle that runs through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation teaching us that God blesses his people so that they will be a blessing to others. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. Daniel in Babylon, whom we looked at a few months ago, was blessed by God and became a great blessing just where God had placed him in Babylon. And this is true for Christians today, for in Christ the blessing of God rests upon us, and we are to be people who carry the blessing of God into whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, even if those circumstances are not those we would have chosen for ourselves. Why that is significant is because there is not a hint in this narrative that Joseph was carrying a massive chip on his shoulder because he wasn't in the place he wanted to be. There's not a hint of it. He could have chosen to adopt a victim mentality. He could have chosen bitterness, but he doesn't seem to do so. This is a real challenge to us. Often in life, we find ourselves in circumstances we would not have chosen for ourselves. Single, when we thought we'd be married. Married, and our marriage is not what we dreamed it would be. Childless, when we thought we'd have children. A job that we find ourselves in, and it was never the career we hoped for. Many of us can imagine something better for ourselves than what we're doing today. But what are we to do? Just wallow in sorrow? That things didn't work out the way we wanted them to? The greater reality is that if you love and follow Jesus, God always writes a better story for you than you could write for yourself. What's our job when we go through changing circumstances and end up in circumstances that we would never have chosen for ourselves? Well, our job is to continue to faithfully follow the Lord, to seek satisfaction in the blessing that we have in Christ, and we are to seek to be a blessing honor the Lord in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2.15, we are to be the aroma of Christ among the saved and perishing in the world. To be the aroma of Christ 
even in circumstances you wouldn't have chosen for yourself, instead of being the aroma of bitterness and complaining and sulking, we're called to be the aroma of Christ, people of hope, people who've surrendered to a sovereign God, people who are called to honor the Lord and bow before His sovereign purposes with reverence and awe. Joseph could have carried a sorry-for-myself attitude through the rest of his life, but he chose to accept his new circumstances and try to live a faithful, God-honoring life in the context he found himself in. God was with him and helping him in his forsakenness. This is really important when we have plans and they don't go the way we wanted them to. We find something redirecting us and we find ourselves in a set of circumstances that we don't understand. As Christians, we don't give in in that moment to complaining, a victim mentality, and bitterness. We fight that to try and honor the Lord, our sovereign God. In the second chapter of our narrative, we see that God was not just with Joseph in his forsakenness, God was with Joseph in his, what could we call it, newfound freedom. He was still a slave, but in many ways, there was newfound freedom for him. He wasn't just a strong and gifted leader. In verse 6, we're told he was handsome in form and appearance. And the promiscuous wife of Potiphar, notice not even given the dignity of being named in the narrative, she's attracted to Joseph, and she pretty much commands him to come to bed with her. Now, think about that for a moment. Everyone whom Joseph knows, his family, his friends, his good influences, none of them are with him. He's anonymous. He's left Israel behind and made a fresh new start and a new life. Like some of you students who've left mom and dads and you're in Belfast and you've got freedom. It would have been easy for Joseph also to leave his faith in God behind and to just follow his master's wife's order. But he doesn't. And the answer he gives to this nasty piece of stuff, Potiphar's wife, is stirring. Verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, the way he speaks there about his master trusting him makes us expect that last sentence to read like this. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against my master? That's what you'd expect, because he's been going on. My master's no concern about anything in the house. He's put me in charge of everything he has. My master has kept, not kept back anything from me, so how then could I do this and sin against my master? But he doesn't say that. What does he say? How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He's conscious of God. Even though Joseph has been dealt a tough blow from the Lord. Even though he's found himself in circumstances he would not have chosen for himself, he's a man who wants to live a life that honors God. 
God is always the most offended party when we sin. Joseph knew that. Remember how David acknowledged this in his prayer of repentance after his sexual sin with Bathsheba? Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's from Psalm 51. God is always the most offended party when we sin. Sin is always first an offense to God. This is instructive for us. Joseph wanted to honor God with his life. He wanted to honor God by not Uh, by preserving his sexual morality. He did not want to be sexually immoral when the pressure was on. His chastity was worship. And your chastity, any Christian who keeps sex in the boundary lines of marriage that God has intended for it, any Christian who honors the Lord with their sexual morality, that chastity is worship. God was with Joseph, and Joseph seems to have been conscious of it, conscious of God. He could have left behind the religion of mom and dad, but he he wanted to honor the Lord in the place God had put him. Well, Potiphar's wife was persistent. In verse 10, we read, she pleaded with Joseph day after day, but Joseph wouldn't listen to her, lie beside her, or even be near her. That's wise. The best way to fight temptation is stay far away from the circumstances that would lead you to giving in. But then in verse 11, we read these words, but one day, and that doesn't sound good in the narrative. When he went into the house to do his work, that's Joseph, none of the men of the house were there, She caught him by his garment. And that's a really aggressive word in the Hebrew, usually only used for men who are roughly grabbing a woman. She said, lie with me. It's like she grabbed him by the cloak and and said, come and lie with me. And Joseph fought the temptation. He wrestled himself free. And we literally read that he just ran out the house. But what happened as he did, she wouldn't let go and he had to fight the cloak off him. She took it in her hand and he bolted out the door. Had to get out of there again. It's not a bad thing to do when you're tempted to be inappropriate. Frustrated now, this frustrated lover, she couldn't have what she wanted, so she turned and decided to mete out her vengeance on Joseph. In verses 13 to 18, we read of her calling the men of the house, accusing Joseph of trying to force himself on her. It's a lie. She told this to her husband when he returned and showed him the cloak. Look, here's his cloak. Isn't it ironic it's the second time a cloak had been used to lead someone astray in Joseph's story? Do you remember his brothers took the cloak, dipped it in the blood? Oh, he's been killed. And now Potiphar's wife holds the cloak. He tried to laugh at us. You know, he's here. He's being inappropriate. This is what this slave did. I think there's a very simple point of application here, isn't there? Never let yourself be in a situation where you're in the house alone and you can be accused of being inappropriate. Be wise. Be vigilant. But here's what I want us to see in this very difficult, imagine, very high-pressured situation for this young Joseph. The Lord was with him. He's conscious of honoring God, and the Lord helped him to fight the temptations that came with this new setting when he was away from the more sheltered upbringing he knew with his parents and his brothers. 
God was with Joseph in his newfound freedom. Thirdly, we see then that God was with Joseph in his new frustrations, 19 to 23. In verse 19, we read, as soon as Joseph's master heard his wife's report, his anger was kindled. He took Joseph, had him put into the prison where the king's prisoners were confined. Now, what is interesting here is that the death penalty, uh, in in Egypt, the death penalty was usually used for um, this kind of sin. If a slave had acted in this way, it would usually be executed straight away. You have to wonder, did Potiphar know what his wife was really like? Was his anger more motivated, potentially, because he kind of was trapped. He had to show respect for his wife and honor her word. But now he was losing his best, most trusted servant. We don't know. (laughs) and We don't want to speculate. But we do know that Joseph was put in prison instead of being executed. And he was put where Pharaoh's prisoners, the king's prisoners, were confined. We'll come back to that. But look at what we read again in verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. Verse 23, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Once again, Joseph prospers, even in circumstances that are very frustrating and he would never have chosen for himself. He once again becomes a channel of blessing just where he is, in the king's dungeon. God is with him, and God made him succeed. And that's where the chapter leaves us off. Joseph betrayed for a second time in prison. So it wasn't bad that it wasn't just deep that he he went from the promised land of blessing down to Egypt. Now in Egypt he goes down to the dungeon. And yet you remember those lovely words of that Corey Ten Boom shared with her sister Betsy in the, the prison of war camp. There's no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. The Lord's with Joseph in the depths of the dungeon. But that's where the narrative leaves us. And I said at the beginning that this narrative has a lot to teach us about the shape of God's providential care in our lives. As Christians, we know at the end of the Great Commission, Jesus said to his disciples and all following disciples after them, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So there's a promise, just as the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord has made a promise to every Christian I'll be with you always. So we can know that in all the ups and downs of life, God is with us. But here's the question that I want to reflect on just now as we close and think through some of the implications of all of this. How does this really get played out in real life? What does it really look like in life to have the blessing of God with us? Knowing God is with us, what then should we expect in life? I have three things to say to that. Number one, God with us. It doesn't mean an easy and trouble-free life. I think that's the first clear implication from this chapter. I read this narrative and I said, Lord, how does this work? 
You're with Joseph? Well, then how come he got betrayed by not only his brothers, but then by Potiphar's wife? You made him succeed, but he's a slave in prison. And that's you with him? As Christians, we're not immune from the pains that come from living in a fallen world. This is important for us to know. See, there's a misunderstanding out there that God with us means we should prosper in every way. That's the prosperity gospel. God's with you, not his will that you'd ever have anything bad. It's not his will that you would be sick. What a load of rubbish. What happens if you preach that message? God is with you means you'll always prosper. What happens when the hard times come? What do you start to think? Oh, maybe he's not with me. Imagine if Joseph was taught the prosperity gospel. Joseph was treated brutally by his brothers, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, did nothing to deserve being sold into slavery or into prison, yet all of this, in all of this, the narrator stresses, God was with him. Well then, you sort of have to ask, don't you, reverently, what use is God's providential care and presence if he doesn't keep us out of the hardships that come in a fallen world? This is where we move to our second implication. What does it mean to have God with us? God's providential care means he orders our troubles and our pains, and he makes them serve his good purposes in our lives. God with us does not mean immunity from the hardships that come in a fallen world. It means he orders our troubles and pains. They don't just come at us randomly. They don't have no purpose. He makes those pains and troubles and trials serve his good purposes in our lives. Now, there are a couple of little reminders in the narrative that God is sovereign over all that is happening to Joseph. They're subtle, but they're there. Verse 1, we read that Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. Now, who was ultimately behind that? Later, Joseph will say in chapter 45, verse 8, to his brothers, ultimately, it was not you who sent me here, but God. The Lord was orchestrating the events of Joseph's life. And then that little detail I said I'd come back to, verse 20, we read that Joseph was kept where the king's prisoners were confined. Now, that might seem like a a very insignificant detail. But as we'll see, this is part of the providential purpose of God getting Joseph to the place where he will eventually be led right into the presence of Pharaoh, and ultimately his journey through humiliation would lead him right to the top, a place of exaltation. See, when the narrator says he was put where the king's prisoners were confined, the narrator is setting up the fact that God is getting Joseph to the place he wants him to be that will lead through this humiliation ultimately to deliverance, the deliverance of Israel. Because when they need a man at the top, when there's no food, and the man at the top is their brother who has the key to all the storehouses in Egypt, it's good to know him. 
Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What is the good he's working in us? Conforming us to the image of his son. Our trials, Joseph's trials, they're like God taking a hammer and chisel to our lives to chisel away all that doesn't look like his son. It's painful, but it's good. He doesn't just chisel away, he paints us to make us more like his son. And the chiseling and the painting so often happens in our trials. Pride gets chipped away. Selfishness gets chipped away. Self-sufficiency, self-dependence gets chipped away. And it's for our good. God was working out his purposes of sanctification in Joseph's life. And he would work deliverance for his people through putting Joseph into the place where the king's prisoners were confined and then giving him a path to Pharaoh. For us, we can know when pain strikes, God orders our troubles and our pains. His ways are way above our ways. His thoughts are way above ours. So often we cannot see how can this be part of your good purposes. Imagine Joseph, betrayed by his brothers, secondly betrayed by Potiphar's wife, not just down invisible in Egypt, now at the bottom of the dungeon. Could he have ever written the story that would become the story that by the end of chapter 50 we will understand? And in our pains and difficulties, could we ever write the story that will be the story when we stand with the Lord and look back over this little life and we'll understand it all. And we'll say, God meant it for good. So God's providential care does not mean immunity from hardship in a fallen world. It means God orders our troubles and pains and makes them serve his good purpose in our lives. But third implication here, I think, and third way we're to understand this providential care is that this God with us, it means he stays with us in the lowest of the low moments when no human can reach us. And he sustains us with his steadfast love that never ceases. Did you notice that in verse 21 in prison we read, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. That's lovely. The Lord presenced himself with Joseph in the pit, comforted him, strengthened him, helped him not give in to bitterness. Earlier this week, I was preaching in England at a conference for AIM, and I was preaching on Daniel chapter 3. Do you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They're told, you don't bow down to the King Nebuchadnezzar's statue. You're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And what did Nebuchadnezzar say? What God is able to save you from my hand? And they were like, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to answer you in this matter. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. And he will deliver us. But if not, we just want you to know, we'll never bow down. To any other God but our God. And what happens? They get thrown into the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar looks in and he's like, were there not just three men in the fire? Well, I see four. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. The fourth man knows how to find his people in the fire. He can stand in the furnace with you when no other human can. 
The fourth man knows how to find his people in the fire. Emmanuel, God with us. God's providence. He has not promised to keep us out of the fire, but he's promised to stay with us in it. And more than that, he refines us through it. That is the blessing of God's providential care. To get at the heart of what this is about, just finally, think about a phrase people use when they speak of fighting cancer. We hear this all the time in our society. People speak of being diagnosed and we're trying to beat cancer. And what does that mean in the world? We're trying to get better. For the Christian, beating cancer does not first mean getting better from it. It means trusting God in it, knowing that he's over it and that he will sustain in the depths of it. That is beating cancer for the Christian. Whether he glorifies his name by miraculously healing me or whether he glorifies his name by not healing me but keeping me faithful in it, I'll honor him. He's God, I'm not. He didn't promise to keep me out of the fire. He promised to stand with me in it and he promised that he has good purposes for it. That's God with us. That's real. Beating cancer or whatever else our challenge may be is discovering that God with us is enough. His presence, his provision, his power That's what we need above all in any circumstances. This is why Wesley said on his deathbed, the best of all is God with us. You imagine you come to die. Everything of this life is going to fall away. Who stays with you through death when no human can? When you close your eyes on this earth, Who stays with you? Who will walk you through that shadowy valley? The Lord, your salvation. You'll never be alone. God is with us. And Wesley on his deathbed says the best of all is God is with us. And I think the big question we all need to ask ourselves is do we know we have God with us? The only way you know that God is for you and not against you is if you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. None of this, well, once I called myself a Christian, but now I just try by my good works to get to God. No, that is not salvation. You need to fall before Christ and bow down on your knees and say, my Lord, my Savior, God, I need you to be with me. My sin means you're not with me. But if you cleanse my sin through your son, then I will be clean and I will be able to say God is with me in life. And then when you come to die, God will be with you. And you'll be saying the best of all is God with us. Don't be left in that moment not able to say that. Jesus left his own place of exaltation to enter into our humiliation. Think about it. He would go to the place where the king's prisoners were confined. 
in his humility, on the cross, he would go to the lowest of the low, God with us. And he would break the prison of death and condemnation open through his powerful resurrection to set the king's prisoners free. And in Christ, we rise, liberated from sin, condemnation, fear of death, knowing a sovereign God with us in life, with us in death, God with us. So this week, if you're like me walking into that new school environment, There's something there making you anxious, nervous, maybe a health condition, maybe something in front of you, and it just scares the life out of you. The unknown scares the life out of you. Just you think about it. Deus nobiscum. God is with us. I heard a poem once. I think it was written by John Piper, and it captures the grace of providence beautifully. With this I close. Piper writes, The grace of providence, not to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and our pain, and then in the darkness is there to sustain. Let's pray. Father, we know the truth expressed in Genesis 39. God with us does not mean a primrose path through life. In fact, in a fallen world, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so we know that your providential grace, it's not to bar what is not bliss. It's not to to keep us from everything that's difficult, nor is it flight from all distress. But Lord, we know that your grace, your providential care, you with us, you're the one who orders our trouble and pain. And then in the darkness, you stay with us. You're there to sustain. That's the reality of God with us. And Father, we're so thankful, so thankful that in all the changing circumstances of life, especially when we find ourselves in circumstances we would never have chosen for ourselves, thank you that we can know you're with us, ordering our lives, showing us steadfast love, sustaining us. We think of the author of Lamentations who said, I remember my wandering, my gall, the bitterness, my soul's downcast within me, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And that is our hope, Father. And we thank you that tonight we can go out, if we are in Christ, saying, whatever this week holds ahead of us, God's with us. And that's the best of all. We'll never lose you. You'll never leave us. You'll never forsake us. Thank you for the indestructible hope we have because of a Savior who's made a promise. I'll be with you always. That gives us courage, Lord, when everything else around us feels unstable. We thank you for the solid rock you've put under our feet. And I just pray this evening that we would all go out knowing Christ knowing God with us, 
and that if we do not know that, we would not leave this building before we get right with you. For we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted us to sing together uh, as a response, uh, faithful one, so unchanging. Let's stand and sing of the faithfulness of God. of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen.